Good morning. Uh, would you please open your Bibles to uh, the book of Leviticus and uh, chapter 1 of uh, Leviticus, please. Uh, we'll be looking at chapters 1 to 7 this morning. And uh, before we get into our text this morning, just want to specially recognize and uh, give praise to God for a dear couple who uh, are, uh, this is their last Friday with us here in Abu Dhabi. Uh, this is Michael and Claudia uh, Smith. Uh, Michael uh, came on staff last year as an interim uh, pastoral assistant during a time of uh, great transition uh, for our church. And he has been a, a real help and a blessing in the office. Uh, they have been uh, very much a blessing to many of you through their relationships uh, in the church and uh, through uh, connecting with so many of you. We're so thankful for their service. Uh, they have been blessed three weeks ago with a, a little girl named Cornelia. Uh, so Cornelia is here. She can be high and lifted up if people want to see, but uh, they are uh, moving to Dubai where Michael will be uh, uh, working as a, as a teacher. So Michael, Claudia, if you could uh, please stand up and, and we'll just recognize you. Uh, yeah, just so thankful for you. And let's, uh, let's just pray for them as they move on to this new chapter in their lives. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Smith family, for Michael and Claudia. Thank you for bringing them here to Abu Dhabi. Uh, thank you for Michael's uh, uh, service on our team, on our staff team, Lord, as a pastoral assistant. Uh, thank you for the way that they formed so many relationships uh, while here in Abu Dhabi and uh, being fruitful members of this church. Uh, Father, thank you for blessing them with little Cornelia. We do pray for them in this new chapter and season of their lives uh, that they would glorify you in every way and be equipped for every good work uh, as they go on to uh, Dubai. Uh, Father, bless them in this new journey of parenting. And Father, continue to use them, Lord, for your name's sake. Grow them as disciples of Jesus to be gospel ambassadors to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, thank you, brother. Thank you, sister. Um, this morning, we're beginning... Uh, with Leviticus chapter 1. Let me call your attention to verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. Heavenly Father, help us to see Christ and Him crucified in these chapters of Leviticus by Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. I stood there shocked, amazed, and frankly, quite a bit disgusted. Now, some of you, uh, with where you're from and your background, you might hear what I tell you, and you might think, oh, what's all the fuss all about, Pastor Aubrey, get over it. Others might share my sentiment when I describe this experience to you. I had just graduated from college, and I was going on to take an engineering job, but in the meanwhile, I was helping my dad set up uh, a catering business. We, he was going into the hospitality industry, and we had started this catering business to uh, cater biryani, chicken biryani, and... Uh, you know, the one morning, uh, the guy who delivers the chicken didn't show up. And so my dad woke me up. It was very early, uh, before the sun rises even. And he said, okay, this, this is a problem. There's no chicken for the kitchen. You need to go to the chicken shop 
and uh, you know, ask him to slaughter for you, I don't remember the number, 15 or 20 chickens and bring back the meat. So I went to the chicken shop, quite unassuming, not knowing what to expect. You see, I grew up in the city. I'm a city boy. Grew up in the city of Chennai, urban center. It was pretty affluent family, very sheltered life. So this was a first for me at 21 years old. And so I went there and ordered however many number of chickens, and he was slaughtering them live in front of me. So he makes a cut, mutters something while making the cut, throws the chicken in a big bucket. And then next chicken, another cut into the bucket. Next chicken, another cut into the bucket. And I'm watching this, and the bucket is, you know, starting to shake, you know, it's moving like all these noises and it's rolling around and, and then, you know, after uh, each chicken is, you know, kind of says, the bucket starts slowing down a little bit and then he pulls it out and then takes out the feathers and, and everything and, and I was just standing there. Oh, what is going on? And for some of you, like I said, it might be familiar experience for others. That's quite far removed. Even further removed would be the experience of visiting a slaughterhouse and watching them slaughter, you know, bulls, cows, and goats. For most of us in the modern world, the shedding of blood is a reality that is far removed from our lives. Like we even here in the UAE, we pick up our meat in grocery stores. It's nicely cleaned and cut and packaged and refrigerated, and you pick it up and take it home and cook it and eat delicious food. But the Christian faith, biblical religion, as one writer put it, is a slaughterhouse religion. Blood is the paint with which the story of the Bible is painted. And you know, we use these Christian words, Christian terms often. Uh, we even sing about them like we sang this morning. You know, Christ is our sacrifice. And, and by the blood of Christ, we receive forgiveness of sins. And we don't often think about the reality of what that represents. What does it mean to say that I'm cleansed by Jesus' blood? What does it mean to say that Christ is my perfect sacrifice? Well, this morning, we are going to get a clear view into the role of blood and sacrifice in the Bible. Because the book of Leviticus begins with seven chapters with instructions for sacrifices. And my aim this morning, brothers and sisters, is that by looking at these sacrifices of the Levitical sacrificial system, that we would cherish Christ's perfect sacrifice. And that we would respond to him in faith and devotion. So as you come into the text, chapter 1, you'll see that there are five kinds of sacrifices that God prescribes. People weren't to offer any kind of sacrifice that they want. It was very specific. And there are five sacrifices detailed here. First is the burnt offering in chapter 1. Then you have the grain offering in chapter 2. Then you have the peace or fellowship offering, as it is called, in chapter 3. Then there's the sin or purification offering. And this is from chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 5, verse 13. And then finally you had the guilt offering 
in chapter 5, verse 14, to chapter 6, verse 7. The, the first three were voluntary uh, offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, or the peace and, or fellowship offering. These were voluntary offerings. The last two, the sin or purification offering and the guilt offering, were mandatory, obligatory. Right? Everyone had to offer these. And these sacrifices each had different functions. Right? They had uh, slightly different purposes. But there's a lot of overlap and many commonalities between them. And it's on those commonalities we're going to focus. And as we go on, uh, we will see what was the emphasis of each particular one. But even before we do that, the fact that we have seven chapters of sacrifice here in the third book of the Bible ought to press upon us the question, why? Why does the creator God, the one true God, the God of the Bible, our God, why does God demand sacrifice to approach him. You might remember from last week that we saw that the book of Leviticus is a book about how to live in God's presence. How can sinful people like us draw near to our holy creator? How can God, our holy creator, dwell in the midst of a sinful people? How do we find life? How do we live in God's presence? And the answer is, of course, through sacrifice. Why? Because God is holy first. We recognize that our creator, the one true and living God, is a holy God. He is perfect in all his ways. He is perfect in his majesty, in his righteousness, in his justice, in his purity. No shade of darkness or sin in him. He is blazing in light and holiness. You know, uh, we don't recognize the need for sacrifice when we don't recognize the holiness of God. And this is a very common problem in today's culture and especially in contemporary Christianity. We suffer from, as uh, David Wells puts it, this idea of the weightlessness of God. God has been reduced in our minds to be some kind of happy Santa Claus in the sky. We, we treat God as if he were our buddy. We take advantage of God's grace to us and treat him like, you know, he's of no consequence. And so we come casually, yo God. The God of the Bible is a holy God. He's a God of majesty and glory and awesomeness. Second, we are a sinful people. We are unclean and guilty, a condemned race. We see this in the very beginning, Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, their creator, and as a result brought guilt upon themselves and guilt upon us all. We all come into this world stained with sin, depraved, constantly inclined towards doing what is wrong. And as one pastor said, most people don't come to church today recognizing their need for forgiveness. We've shrunk God in our minds. God's holiness has become small. Of course, the result is that our sinfulness also gets trivialized and gets minimized in our minds. So people will come to church these days with, you know, a need for community or a need to feel better about themselves or a need for inspiration or encouragement, or even a need for entertainment. But very few people recognize our need for 
forgiveness. We have a holy God, a sinful people. How do we live in his presence? God makes the way. God makes a way for his people to draw near to him and to live in his holy presence. And that way, as one author says, and as I put it last week, is through a bloody knife and a burning altar. The way to God, to life in his presence, is through sacrifice. And that's why we see Leviticus open with instructions on these sacrifices. And I said we're going to look at those elements that were common, and as we see those, we will see what the author also wants to emphasize with each particular sacrifice. So we're going to go through the entire process of sacrifice, step by step. This had to happen with every sacrifice, step by step. Step one is presentation. Presentation. And this is the act of bringing an animal, bringing an offering to be sacrificed to the Lord. Chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Pay attention now. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. This is the act of presentation, of bringing the animal, bringing the offering. And there's four points I want us to see, to notice, to observe here as we consider the act of presentation, which is the first step in sacrifice. First is the provision of sacrifice, the provision of sacrifice. Uh, God's people, the Israelites, were to recognize that these sacrifices, what they brought, was what God had provided for them. The, they were not to go out and just capture something, you know, by hunting a wild animal somewhere and bring that to sacrifice. No, no, they were to use what God had already given them. Right? God has provided, notice verse 2, where he says, You shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. This isn't man trying to work his way to God. This is God having provided for his people, by his grace, so that they would have something to offer. And God in his provision is gracious. In his grace, he is inclusive, so that no one was excluded from being able to offer sacrifice, even the poorest of the poor. And therefore, as you go through these chapters and look at these sacrifices, you'll see that God makes concessions based on the uh, capability of the person and, and what they could afford. So, for instance, uh, verse 3, with the burnt offering, which was, like I said, voluntary, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Then if someone was poorer, there's concession for that. Uh, verse 10, if his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or, sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. And then there's further concession for those who were even poorer. Verse 14, if his offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or pigeons. So even for the voluntary offerings, there were these concessions for those who were poorer so that they could also make offerings. For the mandatory or obligatory offerings, like for sin, the sin offering, the purification offering, we see the same thing. Uh, listen to these words. Uh, chapter 5, verse 7. But if he cannot afford a lamb... 
Then he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. So if someone couldn't afford a lamb for their sacrifice, they could bring these. If they couldn't afford the birds, chapter 5, verse 11, if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed, a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. And in all of this, brothers and sisters, we see God's grace. As one writer says, the unmistakable message is that God wishes to exclude no one from enjoying his presence on the grounds of cost. God does not expect ordinary Israelites to give what they could not afford. His grace is inclusive and his welcome is wide. So that's the first point under presentation, the provision of sacrifice. We see the second point being the nature of sacrifice. On the one hand, God has provided for his people and his grace is inclusive, welcoming all of them to come to his courts. On the other hand, you had to provide something. You had to bring something that costs you. The sacrifices were to be without blemish. That's the nature of the sacrifices you had to offer, without blemish, perfect in every way. Chapter 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. Those words are repeated again and again in these chapters of Leviticus. Uh, verse 10. If his gift for a burnt offering is from the flock, from the sheep or goats, he shall bring a male without blemish. Chapter 3, verse 1. If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. There had to be some personal cost involved and you had to bring something that was whole, that was perfect, that was without blemish. Of course, this in God's wisdom is God's way of probing the hearts of his people. Just as the priest would examine the animal and, and, and see if there was any defect or any problem, God is examining the heart because you see, it was easy for someone to deceitfully bring sacrifice and make a public show of their religion without really being right with God. You could pick up an animal that, you know, you, you thought, oh, this one is going to die in three months. There's some kind of a disease that this animal has. And a few months from now, it's going to be dead anyway. I might as well go and offer it as a sacrifice and make a show of things and everyone can see. Or you could take an animal that was defective in some way that was blind or one leg broken. And you say, you know what, I'll offer this. But God is probing the heart. You can't cheat the Lord. You can't pretend that God doesn't see or know. Maybe some people would come carelessly, thoughtlessly, not even thinking what animal they're offering. I'm just going to take one of them and, and you know, offer it up. No, there was no room to approach God carelessly, thoughtlessly or deceitfully. How one approaches God reveals one's heart. And it's the same today, dear friends. We dare not come to God and, and, and make a show of ourselves, pretending we were right with Him when we haven't brought Him our whole heart, when we haven't brought Him our very best. We dare not come to God casually, thoughtlessly, even deceitfully, hiding our sin, no, God probes our hearts when we approach Him. 
and the wholeness of the sacrifice, the perfection of the offering represents wholehearted submission to God's will, total dedication, complete consecration. God demands the very best and God deserves nothing less. So we've seen the provision of sacrifice. We've seen the nature of the sacrifice. Again, under presentation, we see the status of the sinner. The status of the sinner. I told you God's grace was all inclusive and welcoming so that everyone could make an offering. At the same time, God places a higher price, a higher premium for the sacrifices offered for the sins of leaders. So if someone was a leader the cost was higher. In fact, you'll see this in, in chapter 4. Look at verses 1 to 3 and, and on. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, that's the high priest, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. For the sin of the high priest, it comes upon all the people. He brings guilt on all the people because he is representative of the people. And it's the highest cost. Right? It's the top line offering, a bull without blemish. In fact, it's equivalent to as if the whole congregation had sinned. So if there was a sin that was corporate in nature, the, all of the people had committed a sin. It, it was a congregational sin. It's the same cost as if the high priest were to sin. That's in verses 13 and 14 of the same chapter. If the whole congregation of Israel sins unintentionally, and the thing is hidden from the eyes of the assembly, and they do any one of the things that by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done, and they realize their guilt, when the sin which they have committed becomes known, the assembly shall offer a bull from the herd for a sin offering, and bring it in front of the tent of meeting. So if the high priest sins, or the whole congregation sins, the price is the same. Uh, the price is lowered if it is a leader, not the high priest, kind of a tribal leader uh, were to sin. It, it's a little bit lesser price. That's in verses 22 to 23. When a leader sins, doing unintentionally any one of all the things that by the commandments of the Lord his God ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring as his offering a goat, a male without blemish. So high priest, bull, whole congregation, bull, Ordinary leader, tribal leader, male goat, and then look what happens for the common people, verses 27 to 28. If any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any one of the things that the, by the Lord's commandments ought not to be done and realizes his guilt or the sin which he has committed is made known to him, he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without blemish for his sin which he has committed. The male animals uh, were of more worth than female animals. And here, if a common person sins, it's a female goat. So bull for the high priest or the congregation as a, uh, as a whole, male goat for a tribal leader, female goat for an ordinary person. As the status of the person in terms of leadership increases, the cost of their sin is greater. And it's the same today. This is why churches ought to have a high standard for leadership. Pastors, elders are held to a higher standard of integrity, blamelessness, moral character. We are to be above reproach. This is why the process for eldership at ECC is, is no small thing. The men are examined carefully 
before we are appointed to the office of elder. So in presentation, we've seen the provision of sacrifice. We've seen the nature of the sacrifice, the status of the sinner. Finally, we see the nature of the sin. The nature of the sin. You might have noticed as I was reading there, chapter 4, that again and again the text speaks of unintentional sin. And that might seem surprising to you. You might say, I thought sin was only a matter of your intentions, that you do something wrong that you intended to do, and that is sin. But maybe if I didn't intend to do something and it happened, that's just a mistake. It's not sin. Well, yes, sin is a matter of intention. And when you intend to do something wrong, that is sin. But also, you can sin without intending it or even knowing it. Any breaking of God's law, any violation of God's law or transgression of His commands, my friends, is sin before God. Whether you know it or not, whether you intended it or not. And even the unintentional sins required sacrifice must be paid for before God. We also see that they had to offer sacrifices for sins of omission. Sins of omission. So for example, look at Leviticus 5.1. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet he does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. So there are sins that we commit when we do what we ought not to do. There are sins that we commit by result of omission when we don't do what we ought to do. So you were found in sin not just for doing what is wrong, but also for failing to do what is right. And it would be good for us to often examine our own hearts and bring our hearts under the light of God's word to see if we are found in any kind of unintentional sin or any kind of sin of omission, of failing to keep God's commands and regularly bring our sins in light of God's word and confess before him. So that was the first step in the process, presentation. The second step in the process of sacrifice, again, we're looking at those steps that are common across sacrifices, was substitution. Substitution. So look at chapter 1, verse 4. And again, this is common for all of these sacrifices. You see this again and again. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So this was the uh, ritual of leaning on the animal. Now, I, I look at that translation there. He shall lay his hand on the head. And it feels kind of weak for the actual uh, meaning. It, it almost feels like, you know, you're petting the animal. Like, oh, I'll just lay my hand on this cute little lamb, you know. Uh, and, and you're just touching it. Uh, but that's not what it actually means. This was to lean on the animal. Press down. There was pressure. Uh, the same word is, is used, uh, the Hebrew word is used often to describe leaning on a wall or leaning on something for support. So the, the worshiper here is consciously, actively pressing, laying his weight on the animal's head. And as they did this, they would pray and, and confess their sins. This, this was an act of confession. Again, worship involves active involvement of the worshiper. It was not passive where you just brought the animal and someone does something for you. You were actively engaged and involved in worship. We always are supposed to be actively involved in worship. And so they were leaning the hand on the head of the animal in prayer. 
And this act was meant to symbolize something very important and specific. It, it symbolized the transference of sin to the animal and especially the fact that the animal was now going to act as a substitute for the person. So when the person leans his hand on the head of the animal, he's saying, this will now be my substitute. By God's grace and mercy, by my faith in his promise, this animal will act as a representative substitute for me. What is supposed to happen to me for my sin will happen to it. The penalty that I am supposed to bear is going to be inflicted upon this substitute. Substitution was the second step in the process. Third step in the process was slaughter. Slaughter. Presentation, substitution, slaughter. Chapter 1 verses 5 to 8. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. Now, when you read the uh, terms here for slaughter, this was a very specific term for killing and, and for slaughter. It, it's a sacrificial slaughter. It's not just any act of killing. The, the act was supposed to be very specific to make a cut in such a way that all of the animal's blood would be poured out and drained. And notice who is performing the act of slaughter. It's not the priest. It's the worshiper himself. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. The worshiper is not spared the violence of the offering. The worshiper is also to wash the entrails and the legs, verse 9. Again, active involvement in this act. And, and worshippers are not spared the violence and the mess of sacrifice. And, and as they do this, as they watch the animal's blood being drained out of its body, watching its life slip away, watching the animal die, and then having to flay it and cut it up till it is a mangled mass of flesh and bones and unrecognizable, and then washing the dirt away from its uh, entrails and, and its legs, and then finally watching it go up in smoke, the, the repeated message being proclaimed to the worshiper is, this is what I deserve. This is what I deserve. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. And God, the holy creator God, the awesome God, must be approached through death. Death is the penalty for sin. And death is what I deserve. And this substitute is taking my place. You know, we so easily, so often trivialize our sin, speak so casually about our sin, treat sin so lightly, even in the language that we use and, and the way that we talk. We, we speak of sin as if it were sickness. We use the language of infirmity to try to hide and disguise our iniquity. We, we speak of making mistakes. Oh, I just made a mistake. I made an honest mistake. 
we talk with these obscure phrases, you know, in, in the passive voice, I've talked with people and, and they say things like, oh, it happened. What happened? I fell into sin. That was not possible for these people. As they watched the animal slip out of life and into death, as they watched its blood poured out, the wages of sin is death. We've seen presentation, substitution, slaughter. The next step in the process is beautiful and glorious. Atonement. Step four, atonement. And each offering we're going to look at uh, emphasizes a different aspect of atonement. Three of the offerings in particular emphasize atonement, and each of them emphasizes atonement in different ways. Atonement, such a beautiful word, such an important biblical word, a Christian word that all of us must know and understand. And even in the English, if you you think of the, the way the word is formed, atonement means at one mint. At one mint. That the separation that existed between God and sinful man is now being removed. That I can be at one with God, at peace with God again. So atonement, if we were to define it, refers to the process of reconciliation. Of being made right with God and receiving cleansing for sin. Being made right with God and receiving cleansing for sin. And therefore being reconciled to God, our holy creator. You'll see this throughout these chapters. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Chapter 4, verse 26. So the priest shall make atonement for him, for his sin, and he shall be forgiven. And three of the offerings in particular emphasize atonement. The burnt offering the sin or purification offering, and the guilt offering. And they emphasize different aspects of atonement, which I'm going to explain to you. And it's very easy because they all begin with P. They all begin with P. First, purification. Purification. And this is emphasized in the sin or purification offering. Right? You'll notice that this offering in particular, all of the offerings involved some use of the blood of the animal in one way or another, but this offering places special emphasis on the ritualistic use of the animal's blood. Look at chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting, and the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary, and the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting, and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. That refers to the sin of the high priest or of the whole congregation. Again, the status of the sinner determines where this had to be done. Uh, They had to go into the innermost room right before the immediate presence of God in the Holy of Holies and on the veil, sprinkle the blood there. The altar had these horns by which you could grip and that had to be 
uh, cleansed and blood had to be applied to that and then blood poured out at the base of the altar. Very specific instructions. For an ordinary person, chapter 4, verse 30, this is what uh, the priest was to do with the blood. The priest shall take some of its blood with his finger, put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of its blood at the base of the altar. You'll notice here that only the priests are allowed to handle the blood, and the instructions are very specific. Why? Why these particular rituals involving the manipulation of blood? Because blood brings cleansing. Blood is a cleansing agent. It is a cleansing agent acting as a detergent to cleanse and wash away the pollution caused by sin. How does blood accomplish that? Well, blood you'll see in the Bible represents the life of the creature. No blood, no life. You die when your blood is poured out. And blood now being used represents that a death has taken place. A death has taken place so that sin may be cleansed and forgiven. Blood purifies from sin because blood shows that a life has been paid for this sin. Sin has this effect. Sin has this effect of defiling, of polluting, of making unclean. So many of us struggle with this. We have this stain of sin. I've known so many people that I talk with who the stain of sin ever remains on their hearts where you feel dirty and unclean and polluted. It can linger for years and years. Uncleanness. We, we also see that sin has an effect on places. Places become unclean. You'll see later in, in, in this book of Leviticus that the land vomit out its inhabitants. The, the promised land, Canaan, vomited out its inhabitants because they had defiled the land with their sin and, and God brings judgment upon them. Sin has a defiling, polluting effect. It makes you unclean. We, we think of even uh, Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, appropriating this idea in his play, Macbeth, where Lady Macbeth uh, and her husband uh, conspire to murder the king. And then they murder the king and then she's haunted by it where she would wake up each night, uh, you know, suffering from insomnia, unable to sleep, restless and, and walking through the house constantly, compulsively, repeatedly washing her hands over and over again. And, and she says, here's the smell of the blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. We know this intuitively. The stain and uncleanness of sin. Well, the blood functioned and the sin offering particularly functioned to make atonement by purifying sin's pollution. Right? Blood would bring cleansing. The second aspect of atonement that we see in these sacrifices is pardon. So we've seen purification. The next is pardon. And this was particularly associated with the guilt offering, with the guilt offering. Uh, sin exacts a price. So when, when we commit sin, we owe a debt that has to be paid. We incur judicial guilt that has to be dealt with. And that was what the guilt offering was for. It emphasizes the payment of a price 
to procure your pardon from guilt. Look at chapter 5, verses 14 to 15. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, If anyone commits a breach of faith and sins unintentionally in any of the holy things of the Lord, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock valued in silver shekels according to the shekel of the sanctuary for a guilt offering. Notice the emphasis on price there. Compensation. A payment being made in order to receive pardon for guilt so that the debt is paid. That's the second aspect of atonement. The third aspect of atonement, uh, which of course is the most important aspect of atonement, comes to the fore most clearly in the burnt offering. And this was propitiation. So we saw purification, pardon, now propitiation. And some of you are wondering, oh, that's a very complex word. Well, this is a very important word for us to know, brothers and sisters. Propitiation is a biblical word. It's a Christian word. And, and we ought to understand what propitiation means. Propitiation is the turning away of God's righteous wrath against sinners. The turning away of God's righteous wrath towards sinners. We see this emphasized, like I said, it's, it's part of the component of all the offerings, but we see it especially emphasized in the burned offering. Notice Leviticus chapter 1, verse 9. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, as a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. A pleasing aroma. Now, when you hear those words, pleasing aroma, you know, okay, the animal is burning up there on the altar. You're not to think of, oh, but yeah, it smells great. You know, it smells like barbecue. And, and, you know, people feel like the smell of, uh, you know, cooking meat uh, for the worshiper. That's not what it means. This is re referencing a pleasing aroma to God. And, and what does it mean that there's a pleasing aroma to God? We see this earlier in the Bible when the Bible is talking about Noah, where God destroyed all of the world, all of humanity, save a few, because of their sin. Their sin had filled the world. Their iniquity was so great that God brought judgment in the form of a flood. And God's wrath and anger burned against sin. He is a holy God. He is a pure God. He is a God of perfection. He is righteous in his judgment against sin. And Noah, at the end of the flood, he offers a burnt offering and then this, there's this pleasing aroma that goes before God, and God's wrath is stayed, is quenched. That's what the burnt offering was meant to do. That's what the burning up of the animal was meant to accomplish. God turns away his righteous judgment. And it might seem peculiar or uncomfortable for you, for me to speak of God's righteous anger and his wrath, but once again, we must remember the God of the Bible is a holy God. And woe unto us if he were not righteous in his judgment. If God's anger did not burn over sin, that would be hugely problematic for us. We would have sin in this world going unchecked and people inflicting great evil and no righteous God or judge to deal with it. God is a righteous judge and we need a righteous judge. That is the foundation for a moral universe. And yet God's judgment would be quenched, would be turned away through a burning sacrifice on the altar. God's attitude to sinful man 
is altered. You know, you've got to imagine the experience of the Israelite, right, looking at this. Uh, you know, he's standing there. It's, maybe you've had the experience of trying to cook food on the grill. You know, I know some of us are more skillful with barbecue than others. And I've had this experience where cooking this nice piece of meat, then, you, you know, you forget about it or make a mistake, and then it's all burned up and, you know, blackened and, and crispy, and you can't even eat it. I, I try my best sometimes. You know, I don't want it to waste. Imagine the Israelite standing there, the poor Israelite, watching his prized animal mangled, broken up, and now going up in smoke. For the burned offering, the whole animal, no part of it was salvaged. Imagine the pangs he would have felt. But those pangs, the mind, the worshiper, that should be you. That's what you deserve. To be mangled and cut up and burned in this way for your sin. That should be me. That's what our sin costs. This is what it means to fall under the righteous judgment of a holy God. And, and you'll see the burnt offerings were offered morning and evening as a continual reminder. The fire on the altar would be kept burning. Leviticus chapter 6 verses 12 and 13. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. The priest shall burn wood on it every morning and he shall ar arrange the burnt offering on it and it shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And this represents the eternal nature of judgment that comes against sin, that the fire will not go out, and that if we are not repenting and making our hearts right with God, coming to Him in faith and seeking His grace and mercy, that there is a fire, an eternal fire, that will not go out under the righteous wrath and indignation of God, of a holy God for all eternity. The burnt offering was to symbolize the quenching of that fire and wrath. So step four was atonement, but there's something very beautiful in step five, because it was not just the removal of judgment that sacrifice accomplished. God doesn't just remove the judgment that we deserve, but he offers his people friendship, fellowship with God Almighty himself. Step five was fellowship. And you, you know and understand this intuitively, probably from living in the Middle Eastern culture, to sit down and have a meal with someone is to enter a new level of friendship, of relationship with that person. And here we'll see two specific offerings were meant for this, were meant for the worshiper to eat. Uh, in one, one offering was for the priest to eat, the other was for the worshippers to eat and, and to feast in God's presence and to recognize the fellowship that has been accomplished through these sacrifices, the peace with God that I now enjoy. So the grain offering was one which the priests would eat, and this represented the worshippers' thanksgiving to God and devotion to God as a result of God's grace. The peace offerings were animals that were sacrificed, and then the flesh was given back to the worshippers to eat, Leviticus 7.15. The flesh of the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of his offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. And this feast was a solemn feast, recognizing God's holiness. But it was also a joyful feast, recognizing God's grace and God's mercy and promise. And so worshippers were enabled to live in God's presence, to live in fellowship with him. We must remember these offerings were made to God to absorb his righteous wrath towards sinners and to allow sinful people to approach him. 
And they were offered day after day, year after year, morning and evening, repeatedly in the tabernacle in the wilderness, later in the temple that they built when Israel came into the promised land. But all of these sacrifices, no matter how costly, no matter how numerous, no matter how much blood was poured out, all of these could not ultimately make atonement for sin. They were all temporary. They were all provisional. They they, they were repetitive in nature. And as we read from Hebrews 10 earlier today, the repetitive nature itself was to teach something. It was to show a constant reminder of the need for forgiveness. Every day these are being offered. We aren't fully cleansed yet. We aren't fully forgiven yet. Uh, For the faithful Israelite who trusted in God's grace, working through the sacrificial system, they trusted that God would one day provide a better sacrifice, an ultimate cleansing. But it never ultimately, the blood of bulls and goats doesn't pay perfectly, completely for sin. They work like a credit card. What happens with a credit card? You know, you use your credit card, you make a temporary payment, and it says paid, but you have faith. (laughs) But then later you have to pay the bill in full. And so these sacrifices functioned like a credit card, accumulating a, a high, high bill that had to be finally and completely paid. It didn't change the people. Their hearts were not cleansed. Most of the Israelites, if you read the Bible, you'll see misused and abused the sacrificial system. They brought blind animals, lame animals. They bribed the priests, and the priests accepted defective animals in order to you know, just get it done with. Most people just treated it like an empty ritual without any heart of faith. A lot of people became very superstitious about it, thinking they could work their way to God through these sacrifices. It became a very, very sordid affair. Because all these sacrifices never cleansed people's hearts. They were meant to teach God's people, to prepare God's people, to point God's people forward to the fact that God himself has to act. God himself had to come. God himself had to provide a more costly, a greater, a more perfect, a more complete sacrifice. And God has done just that. He has provided a sacrifice that is infinitely more perfect. A sacrifice that is infinitely more costly. A sacrifice that is infinitely more complete in its effects. Because our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, is the perfect sacrifice that God has provided once for all to take away sin forever. Jesus was perfect in every way, and he poured out his blood for sinners like you and me. We we saw that these animals had to be perfect physically. They had to be without blemish. Jesus was perfect spiritually. He was the perfect sacrifice without blemish or spot. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 19 tells us we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You, you think of Jesus' suffering. You think of the burnt offering. I said it was flayed and became a mangled mass of flesh and bones. We, we think of the burnt offering burning on the altar, symbolizing the eternal punishment and complete doom of the sinner. Jesus took that upon himself so that he hung on the cross completely marred in any way beyond physical recognition, taking upon himself the wrath of God 
the punishment that we deserve to set sinners free. Jesus offered himself to God wholly, completely, without reservation. Ephesians 5.2, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus is the one who propitiates God's wrath forever for those who have faith. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 to 25. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received by faith. Jesus' death on the cross is the pleasing aroma that turns away the wrath of God. Jesus' blood cleanses completely, purifies, washes clean the stain of sin. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He is the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So if you are guilty this morning, if you are dirty and stained by sin stained this morning, no matter what you are going through in your heart, come to this perfect sacrifice and approach God through him. I want to call you, non-Christian friend, to come to Jesus. I want to call you, brothers and sisters, come once again to your Savior. Confess your sin before him. Don't try to hide it. Lean. Place your weight in faith. Lean on your perfect substitute, the Son of God, who gave himself as a sacrifice for you. And in Jesus Receive your pardon from sin's guilt, your purification from sin's stain, your propitiation from God's wrath. In Jesus, receive eternal fellowship with God, who in Christ is our friend. We no longer need to offer animal sacrifices because the perfect spotless son of God has offered himself as our perfect sacrifice. But the New Testament still calls us to offer something to God. The Bible calls us, the New Testament tells us, to offer sacrifices. Not physical animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Not to earn God's favor, not to receive God's forgiveness, but as a response to God's marvelous grace and mercy towards us in Christ. So what are we supposed to offer? Ourselves. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 to 16. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such 
sacrifices are pleasing to God. And if I was to sum up all of the instructions in Romans 12 and Hebrews 13 of what it means to offer your body as a living sacrifice, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God, it's simply this. To love God, wholly, completely live devoted to Him, and to love one another, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and care for one another. How are you doing with that? Brothers and sisters, it's sobering to think that in a nation one flight away from here this morning, right now, as I'm talking to you, your brothers and sisters in Christ are being slaughtered because of their faith in Jesus, because of their devotion to him. God may not call us to die for him in that way. He doesn't want us blazing on an altar, but he wants us to live our lives ablaze as a sacrifice for his glory. I'm going to close in prayer with this prayer that I love from Jim Elliot, the martyr who died trying to proclaim Christ. Would you pray with me? God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life, and may I burn for thee. Consume my life, my God, for it is thine. I seek not a long life, but a full one like you, Lord Jesus. Amen.